Jonathan, you can read scripture to me anytime. Good morning. I spoke yesterday with Jessica Congdon. Many of you have met her. She is having surgery uh, this coming week that is going to be very extensive. Um, and, uh, and so I would ask you to keep Jessica in prayer. Uh, let's go to prayer right now. Father, we do want to be faithful in, in lifting Jessica up to you. And I pray that you would carry her safely through the surgery. I pray that it would accomplish the goal, the end that you have in mind and, and the one that we would hope for. And uh, that you would, through it, relieve the pain that she constantly feels. And I pray that you would keep her husband and daughter in your care as well uh, while she is laid up. And so... Uh, I just commit the Congdon family to you. And Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that the new covenant that Jeremiah talked about has come in its fullness in Jesus and that we get to stand on this side of its fulfillment. And uh, we are grateful that uh, your word stands and that your word continues to point us to you, and that the Old Testament points us again and again to Jesus, to our need for a Savior. Thank you that he has come, and that he offers redemption to all who would call upon him. So I pray that you would help us to pay close attention to his words this morning. Speak through me, use me, and the things that you have shown me from your word, may they be helpful to us as we seek to live in response to your call in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I read those words from Jeremiah 31, and I, I just stand in awe, this new covenant that God promised and that he fulfilled in Jesus. Those words from Jeremiah were written six centuries before Jesus. Uh, you know, just think back. You know, how, how far back is six centuries? How long had God's people been waiting for that fulfillment? And yet, here we see it in its fullness in Jesus. The new covenant here in Christ. So, question arises then, what do you do with the old one? People have been working through that question throughout all of church history. A second century heretic named Marcion uh, rewrote the Bible, published his own canon throughout the whole Old Testament, and uh, his canon consisted of 11 books, a shortened version of the Gospel of Luke and 10 letters of Paul. It's all you need, according to Marcion. Some people today believe that the New Testament has superseded the Old in such a way that you really don't need the Old unless it's restated in the new. Anything that's not restated in the new, you can just disregard. What do we do with that? How do we treat the Old Testament? Well, the passage we're going to look at today is pivotal to that discussion because in it we're going to see how Jesus regarded the Old Testament. And from the way he opens the section, in verse 17, it kind of looks like there were some people that were afraid he was about to toss it, right? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament. 
Well, how would they get the idea that he would? Well, Mark's gospel, chapter 2, shows Jesus violating the Sabbath laws even before he chose the twelve. So while the Sermon on the Mount is early in Jesus' ministry, his Sabbath controversies are likely earlier. So early signs from Jesus seem to point to trouble. And then Jesus doesn't just quote authorities like everybody else does. All of the the teachers of the law would quote rabbis. Rabbi so-and-so said this, or Rabbi so-and-so quoted Rabbi such-and-such saying this. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't quote authorities. He spoke with authority. He said, I say to you, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew's gospel, you find that the thing that astonished people was that Jesus was teaching as one who had authority and not like their scribes and teachers of the law. So how will he relate to the Old Testament? You can bet people were eager to hear. And these verses show us. Let's take a look at them together again, and then let's take them in turn. Starting at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's take a look at four Statements come from the four verses. And the first is this, Jesus fulfills, not abolishes the law. So if you're into filling in blanks, there you go. There are your answers. Jesus fulfills, not abolishes the law. Now, a couple terms need to be explained. First, law and prophets. Law and prophets is shorthand for Old Testament. Uh, The Old Testament consisted of of three parts, as it was discussed. Uh, The law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. The prophets, uh, major prophets and minor prophets. And the writings, historical books, poetry, wisdom, literature. The law, the prophets, the writings. Uh, That was often, generally, summarized as law and prophets. And, as Jesus does here in verse 18, even summarized further by saying the law. You look at uh, verse 18, uh, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. He's talking about the Old Testament. In other words, it's still around. So law and prophets equals Old Testament. To speak of law and prophets is to speak of the Old Testament. The other term that we need to explain is the word fulfill. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. When we hear the word fulfill, we think of, of um, someone who is going to fulfill a prophecy or a prediction, that sort of fulfillment. But it's actually more than that. The word means to fill in the sense of filling something up. 
Jesus fulfills or fills up or completes the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. How does he do that? Let me just mention three ways. First, he fulfills the law and the prophets because the whole Old Testament points to him. He fulfills all that the Old Testament had hoped for. It all points to him. He literally fulfills all the messianic prophecies, dealing with his birth, where he would be born, uh, what lineage he would descend from, the fact that during his life he would be rejected, the fact that he would be crucified, the fact that he would be resurrected. All of the messianic prophecies Jesus fulfilled. So, for instance, Psalm 22 gives us a thousand years before Jesus came a description of crucifixion, a form of execution that had not yet been invented. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Amazing picture of what Jesus endured. He fulfilled that. Or Isaiah chapter 53 where Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant who was to come. Again, 700 years before he came. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus fulfills all of the messianic prophecies. It all points to him. There's another way in which Jesus completes the law and the prophets. And that is that the entire sacrificial system points to him. You read about the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They were all to point to Christ. He fills it up. The blood of bulls and goats provided only a temporary covering until Christ would come to offer for all time one sacrifice for sin. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, we read these words. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. 
For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Christ would do that, and this, these sacrifices would only point to him. In verses 11 and 12 of the same chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Every priest stands day after day after day, can't sit down because his job's not done. Jesus offers for one time a sacrifice for all and sits down because his work is done. Sacrificial system points to him. Another way in which Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, fills it up, is that the storyline of the whole Old Testament points to him. There is this huge arc of salvation history. From, from Genesis to Revelation, it all points to Christ. He is the central figure as God reveals more and more of himself to humankind through the arc of salvation history. He revealed himself partially in the Old Testament, now fully in Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 opens this way. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus fulfills the law because it points to him. Now there's another way Jesus fulfilled the law, and that is by showing its true meaning. Jesus got a lot of people upset by doing things on the Sabbath they didn't think he ought to be doing. It seems he was always healing or doing miracles on the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 2, verse 23 to 28, we find him picking grain on the Sabbath. It gets a lot of people upset. But Jesus seizes the opportunity there to teach what the Sabbath is intended to be about. He says, in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You guys have it backwards. He says in verse 28, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus fulfills the law. He shows its intent. It not only points to him, he shows the intent of the law. Scribes and the Pharisees found 613 laws, and they worked hard at keeping them all. And in doing that, Jesus points out that they, may, they missed the point. God's commands are not burdensome, John reminds us in 1 John 5. They're for our good, and they show us what a life lived for the glory of God looks like. Jesus fulfilled the law 
by showing its true meaning. The third way that Jesus fulfilled the law was by keeping it perfectly. We couldn't, he did. Jesus kept the law perfectly. His was a life of perfect obedience. And that qualifies him to be the sinless one who could bear the sin of the world on his shoulders because he committed no sin himself. First Peter chapter one, verse 18. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So, point one, Jesus fulfills or fills up the law, doesn't abolish it. Point two, from verse 18 The entire word of God is here to stay. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The entire word of God is here to stay. It's as permanent as the universe until heaven and earth pass away. So all of God's word is still valid. The Old Testament is still valid. The whole of it reveals God to us and points us to Christ. We don't understand the New Testament as well if we don't see it in its context of the Old Testament. I read about a missionary group that went to a people who had absolutely no exposure to the scriptures before they came. You might think they would start by sharing the good news that a Savior had come to rescue us from our sin. They had no idea what sin was. They had no idea they needed a Savior. And so what this missionary group did was they started at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And they taught about creation. They taught about this magnificent God who created everything you see And they taught that lesson and and kept working through Genesis. And they got to chapter 3 and they talked about how we rebelled against this creator God. How we didn't do what he told us to do. And then they went on to talk about how God provided and how mankind continued to rebel and resist him. In short, they explained the entire Old Testament before telling of the Savior who came to rescue us. And when they got to the New Testament, these people were more than ready to hear it because they understood our need for a Savior. We need the Old Testament. Jesus often quoted the Old Testament, and he would always introduce his quotes the same way. He would say, it is written. It's written. It's a perfect tense, past action with continuing, ongoing results. It was written. It stands written. It will continue to stand written. Here in verse 18, he says something interesting. Not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law Till all is accomplished. Iotas and dots. Okay, kids, this is for you. Just kind of bring you back. 
No, this has been a little heady so far. Iotas and dots. If you had King James Version, it's jots and tittles. Uh, but what do you do with those, those words? What's an iota? What's a dot? Well, are you ready for a little Hebrew? Ready for a little Hebrew? Uh, this is action figure Moses. He's a little Hebrew. And now that you've met him, you can say, I know a little Hebrew. Right? Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you three letters in the Hebrew alphabet that will give you an idea of just how much of the Old Testament Jesus says remains in effect. That one on the far left is the Hebrew letter Yod. Uh, it has the size and shape of an apostrophe. It's the littlest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And that translates into Greek as iota, which is the littlest letter in the Greek alphabet. And it really is kind of a picture of something that's little, right? You ever heard anybody say, I don't care one iota about that, right? You ever hear your parents say that? I don't care one iota. I don't care one little bit about that. So it's the littlest letter. And Jesus says, not the littlest letter is going to pass away from the law whole Old Testament, until all of it is accomplished. Now, that brings us to the next two letters, Daleth and Resh. They look a lot alike, don't they? How do you tell them apart? Well, if you look at the one in the middle, go ahead with the next slide, you can see there is a little corner on it that isn't on the Resh. So Daleth is the letter D, Resh is the letter R, and the way you can tell a D from an R is because of the little corner on the letter D. And that little corner is what the King James Version called a tittle. Uh, it's, it's a horn, a little horn. Or, as we look at fonts, that's a serif. Okay? You ever use a sans serif script uh, or font? Okay? That's a serif. It, it distinguishes one letter from another, it's the smallest part of a letter. And so, what Jesus is saying here is that the entire word of God, all the way down to the smallest letter or a corner of a letter, is here to stay. Verse 19 brings us to a third point, and that is, so, or therefore, don't diminish it. Don't diminish it because it's intended to stay. Don't diminish it, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You ever think about how great it would be if people everywhere live their lives in accordance with what God has revealed in even just the Old Testament. If everyone just lived that way, just imagine what life would be like. Think of the respect for authority. Think of the care for the unfortunate. Think of the kindness to a stranger. 
Think of the care even for our livestock. It would be amazing if people lived their lives according to how God has revealed himself even in just the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but the world makes less and less sense to me all the time. I, I must be getting old. I don't know. Public opinion just seems to sway like flag in a breeze. You just never know which way it's going to go. You look at the news and you see the decisions uh, handed down by courts. You, you see uh, public opinion expressed you just end up scratching your head. The, the things that our culture celebrates and affirms uh, just boggle my mind. And the further away we get from God's word, all of it, Old Testament and New, the less sense this world makes. And Jesus says, God's people don't get rid of God's word. God's people don't get rid of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a part of his revelation of himself to us. We don't rewrite the New Testament without the Old, like that second century heretic Marcion did. By the way, he left this passage out when he rewrote it. The Old Testament is a part of God's self-disclosure to us. And while we know it can't save us, it can point us to the one who can. So we need it. Seeking to honor it as his word is a part of his reign in our lives. As we live in his kingdom, as we live under his kingship. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, as the other New Testament writers do, he's not just speaking about something that's entirely future. Because we saw a couple of weeks ago that God's kingdom came decisively in Jesus. The kingdom of God is the kingship of God. His kingdom has come in Jesus. We can live under his kingship as citizens of his kingdom because we gain access to that kingdom through the blood of Christ. And so the kingdom of God is what one New Testament writer called already and not yet. It's already because it's here in Christ. It's not yet because it is yet to come in all of its fullness. So when Jesus says anyone who diminishes the Old Testament is least in the kingdom, he's saying the Old Testament is still important. It's still part of God's revelation to us. So let me recap the first three points before going on to number four. First, Jesus fulfills and affirms the Old Testament. Second, he lets us know that it's here to stay. Third, he tells us not to diminish it. Now, if that isn't what you were hoping to hear this morning, I'm afraid that the news is about to get a little worse. And then it's going to get a whole lot better. Number four, you've got to outdo the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees to live under God's kingship. Verse 20. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that sounds like the ultimate bad news, doesn't it? How in the world do we live in such a way that our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? These guys were the green berets. They calculated that there were 613 laws and they tried to keep all of them. So if our righteousness is to exceed theirs, we face a pretty difficult task. And if that's not hard enough to live up to all of those, Jesus tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees even built a hedge around the law made up of more laws to keep people from violating the original laws. The idea behind the hedge is that if you can keep all of the extra laws that they invented and put into this hedge around the law, uh, you won't come close to violating one of the 613. So let me give you an illustration of it. Spitting on the ground on the Sabbath is a violation because when you spit on the ground and your spit hits the ground, it creates a furrow in the dust. And plowing is work. Can't plow on the Sabbath. Can't work on the Sabbath. So how do you exceed a standard like that? Jesus says if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're hopeless. How do you exceed that? Build bigger hedges further out? No, the answer isn't found in creating more law. The answer is found in discovering the amazing grace of God. The Pharisees thought they could keep the law if they could keep themselves from violating it. So they built these hedges around the law so they wouldn't even come close to violating it. But the law still condemns us because we can't keep it perfectly even at the level of externals that the Pharisees tried to keep. And then Jesus comes along and shows us the law's full intent, as we'll see in the next six sections of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. And if we couldn't keep it at the level of the externals, like the scribes and the Pharisees tried to do, we sure can't keep it in all of its fullness. But grace takes this bad news and makes it incredibly good news. Here's why. Give you a verse from Romans. Romans chapter 10 verse 4 says this. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let me unpack that a little bit. The word end is the Greek word telos, from which we get telescope, something that allows you to see the end from where you stand. So Christ is the end, the the completion of the law. The law pointed to him. He was the goal of the law, the thing we want to get to. 
Christ is the end, the telos of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that for means into or toward, to accomplish. So Christ is is the goal, this, this thing to which we strive of the law for all who believe. NIV puts it this way. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The gospel gets right to the heart of the law and the prophets because it changes things at the core. It changes our heart. And so Jeremiah, in that passage we looked at earlier today, can say this in Jeremiah 31, 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, verses 26 and 27 puts it this way. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And what happens at that point is amazing. What happens at that point is that commandments become statements of fact. You shall have no other gods before me becomes when you have a relationship with me you won't chase after other gods. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain becomes when you are walking by the Spirit of God, you won't take God's name in vain. Honor your father and mother becomes with a changed heart. You're going to honor your father and mother. You shall not steal becomes with God animating your life. You won't steal. With the spirit of the living God in us, we are new creatures in Christ. And as we live out our new identity, we won't be inclined to do any of those things. What used to be commandments become statements of fact. Jesus affirms and fills up the Old Testament. And with his spirit living inside of us, the commandments that once condemned us become statements of fact about us. We can exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees because theirs was a righteousness of externals and ours is a righteousness of the heart. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for us and he empowers us to live a life for his glory as we walk by his spirit. 
Jesus allows us to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees because he changes things at the core. And I would ask you, has he done that for you? Has he done that for you? Have you trusted in him? Has he taken your heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh? Jesus fulfilled the law. He shows its true intent. And he bears our penalty for not living it out. He can change your very desires. Jesus replaces external laws and fences with internal change that exceeds them. The commandments that condemned us in Christ become statements of fact about us. You'll find some questions for further thought in your program. Pray with me. Father, if we were measured by our compliance with your law, we would all stand condemned. And yet Jesus fulfilled your law perfectly, and he extends to us the offer of receiving his righteousness as a gift. And so, Father, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that needs to receive that gift, that person would say, I want that right now. Lord Jesus, you came to die for me. Would you come into my heart? Forgive me my sin. Take up residence in me and live in me. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to examine our lives according to your perfect law, to see how far short we fall and to put our trust wholly in the Savior who lived a perfect life and bore our sin on the cross for us. And then let us live our lives for your honor and glory by the power that comes from your Spirit living in us. Be glorified in us, in Jesus' name, amen.